Good morning. Our scripture reference was wrong, so I moved quickly. But the title's right. Dire need needs require a great savior. Dire needs require a great savior. It's actually seventeen fourteen to twenty three. That's what you get for taking last week's slides and just not changing a thing. Needless to say, it's good to see everybody this morning. Thankful to be here. Looking forward to sharing with you the good news of Christ again this morning as we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're walking down through this Gospel account, Matthew's account of who Jesus is, the good news of Christ, and every scene is another revelation of our Savior's glory. The last two weeks we've covered the transfiguration, uh, and we saw... Jesus rolled back the curtain on his coming glory and showed who he was to three of his disciples, James, John, and Peter. He had met there with Moses and Elijah, and the Father had spoken directly to the three disciples, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It was a... uh, uh, a wow God moment. They got to see who Christ was and what he's all about. And then on the way down from the mountain, Jesus had explained the twofold fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. That is, that John the Baptist had come in the spirit and power of Elijah, preparing the way for Jesus, the, the Messiah, at his first advent. We know this, right? John the Baptist was a fulfillment of that. But there will be a day coming in the future when Elijah will come and restore all things before the great and terrible day of the Lord at Jesus' second coming, the second advent. And we saw that in our passage that Jesus had pointed to this twofold coming, fulfillment. That is that John the Baptist first pointed to Christ at his first coming, and then there will be an Elijah figure that comes before Jesus' second coming. And that's the way the passage unfolded. In Jesus' explanation of Elijah's ministry, Jesus also alluded to his coming death. In in verse 9, rather, 17.9, you can look there. And then again in 17.12. In 17.9 he says... As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So it implies what? He's going to die. Again, pointing to his death and pointing to the title that Jesus liked and held dear to him, which was the Son of Man. The place that the Son of Man is mentioned is in Daniel chapter 7. In our Old Testament passage today, we got that. Alluding to the Messiah. It was a title for the Messiah. And Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man. The one who will have dominion over all the earth. And all the nations will worship him. And all the nations will honor him. That he will come up to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days will give him glory and honor as the one that was chosen to rule and reign. So here Jesus alludes to himself and he says that he's going to die again in verse 9. And then he alludes to it again in verse 12. Notice it says, but I say to you that Elijah already came. This is 
the first time John the Baptist is the fulfillment. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Again, alluding to his title, Son of Man, and his coming death. The suffering before glory. We talked about that last week, right? Suffering before glory. That's exactly what happened. Jesus suffered, then glory comes. And that's where we're at. As we come down off the mountain, the disciples were hearing over and over and over that Jesus was going to die. That Jesus was going to die and rise from the dead. The disciples didn't really get it. We know that in 1621 is where he started telling them, right? Look back at 1621. you got to make sure you have this. This is the point when Jesus, from that time, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So something switched, right? We talked about the giant shift. From being the Messiah and announcing his kingdom is coming, his kingdom is near, they say, he does these miracles by Beelzebul. He says, that's it, I'm going to judge. And in the process, he then says, who do people say that I am? The people miss it. The disciples say, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And he says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. What? And then he says, You're gonna, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Big shift. Giant shift. What is happening? Well, I would argue that the main problem was it was a wicked and perverse generation. And more than anything else, they needed a savior. They needed somebody to come and die for them. And they couldn't get that. Their faith was weak, even the disciples. Everybody needed a Savior. And Jesus points to His saving act, His sacrifice to come. They didn't get it. They didn't completely grasp it. They knew that He was the Christ. They couldn't get that they needed Him to die. That wasn't registering. They didn't completely understand. Today we see Jesus' first interaction with some uh, with the crowd after coming down off. Uh, from the mountain where the transfiguration happened. Mark's account, the Gospel of Mark's account, states Jesus' disciples were arguing with some scribes. So obviously they were in an area where the Jewish people were, the Jewish leaders were, and the scribes were arguing with the disciples that had been left behind, the nine disciples that had been left behind. The topic of the argument was probably their the disciples' inability to heal this man. They were probably arguing about why and what this was all about. I could see the scribe saying, oh, you're not clean enough. You're not good enough. You're not holy enough. You're unable to do it. But then again, why couldn't scribes do it either? See, there was an inability and they didn't understand it and scribes were arguing. Everybody's down there. And Jesus has been told and it's been affirmed to the disciples, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, and he comes down, and what's happening? Chaos. Chaos. So Jesus enters this chaotic scene, a slap in the face of reality. <laughs> From a glimpse of glory to the 
messiness of this world. From a short interlude in the glory back to the wretchedness of the world. Walks right down that mountain. Beloved, this is what our Bible study time should be like. Let me explain what I mean. We should drink deeply from the well of God's glory when we're in the Word. And then as we step out into the world and start doing life, reality slaps us in the face, doesn't it? We see the glory of God as we read our Bibles. As we study, we see how great Christ is. Or we, or we hear a sermon explaining the Word of God and we say, Christ is good. And then we walk out those doors and our kids are still sinners. The world is still full of sin. And we are sinners too. Jesus walks down into it. And you're going to see in this passage a beautiful picture of how you deal with the wretchedness of the world. (laughs) How we should deal with the wretchedness of the world. Because it's everywhere. Today we see our Savior's interaction with His world. The great needs of the wicked world are on display in our passage. And at the same time, we see our loving Savior is, des- is the desired solution to the world's pain. Jesus is the solution. If you get nothing from me today, and you get nothing from this passage, you get one thing. Here it is. Jesus is the solution, not us. Not us. Not the world. It can't be fixed. Jesus is the solution to the world's problems of wretchedness. And wickedness. Thankfully, Jesus is the loving Savior that we can all look to in our deepest time of need. That's good news, isn't it? I want to break down the passage into two main points. First, the devastating needs displayed. And second, the Savior's love revealed. The devastating needs displayed. And second, the Savior's love revealed. We begin with the devastating needs displayed in this scene. Let's look at them. The devastating needs displayed include, there are three dire needs displayed in this passage. The demon-possessed man, or the son, the demon-possessed son. The unbelieving and perverted generation, verses 16 and 17. And the little faith disciples, verses 19 and 20. So, let's start with the demon-possessed son. Look at your Bibles in verse 14, Matthew 17, 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Wow, this is a pretty dire situation, isn't it? A desperate circumstance. A father has a son, a one of an own, a one of a kind son. This is literally the same word, begotten son. My only begotten son, my one of a kind son. And my one of a kind son, he's a lunatic and he is very ill. In Mark 9 and Luke 9, the parallel passages, it mentions that it was a demon that was causing the boy's illness. 
It was a demon. Now, in our passage, it doesn't really say it right up front. It says it down at the end when he rebukes the spirit, and it comes out. It doesn't even say he rebukes the spirit. It says it rebuked him, and he was healed. Here, Mark 9, 20 says, The demon caused the boy to convulse as he approached Jesus. So in other words, the father's walking up and the son's with him as they approach Jesus. And immediately the demon caused the son to fall to the ground and convulse. Now that's a desperate situation, isn't it? This word lunatic is literally, you can translate it, moonstruck. Moonstruck? What's the idea? The demon caused the man to be totally under its control. The demon was in control of the man completely, the young man. And all of his facilities, everything. He had violent seizures. This was not a normal physical illness. In fact, Jesus identifies this demon as a particularly difficult type of demon to deal with. This is a bad one. A really evil one. One that's described as mute. How do you have a demon that's mute? Which implies probably that it was a deaf demon. A deaf demon? Running and controlling a man. This is a desperate situation. If you spoke to the demon, what would happen? The demon wouldn't hear you. If it was a deaf demon, interesting. How do you cast out a deaf demon? If it can't hear you. This father had only this one son who was suffering greatly under the influences of this demon. This was a desperate circumstance, right? So the father sought the help from Jesus. He sought him with a level of humility. Notice it says he fell on his knees before Jesus, and he addressed Jesus as Lord. So you say, well, this father, at least to some degree, appears to what? Believe. It appears that he believes, to at least to some degree. Yet he's in a dire situation, isn't he? A desperate situation. Now put yourself in the father's situation for just a second. A circumstance. One where you can't do anything. You can't do anything to fix your child. Anybody been in something, maybe not quite that desperate, a demon, hopefully. But you can't control your children, can you? You can't make your children be who you want them to be. You can't make them act like you want them to act. How many times have... We had great times of counseling where we say, children, listen, this is what the Word of God says. You should do this. You should want to do this. And they look at you and go, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want to do that. Or they say, yes, I'll do it, but then they don't. And you can see that they are not happy. They're not really embracing it. They're not really repentant. And we say, you've got to change. You've got to turn. You've got to believe in Christ. He came into the world for you and you give them the gospel and they look at you like you're crazy. They're moonstruck. No. (laughs) They're not demon-possessed, but you're in a desperate situation, aren't you? I've been in those desperate situations. Any of you? So where do we go? Yet notice his father's faith was not near as strong as it appears at first. Notice next the dire need 
of situation of the situation becomes clear as the scene unfolds. In fact, the needs are bigger than at first glance. They're bigger than at first glance. Notice the unbelieving and perverted generation. Verse 16. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Wow. The Father addresses Jesus with the problem that his disciples couldn't heal his son. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Why does this statement bring such a firm rebuke from Jesus? I want you to think about this for a second. There's a firm rebuke here. Right? The Father says, in effect, your disciples can't do anything for him. They can't heal him. And Jesus appears to rebuke the Father to a degree. He doesn't look to the disciples. He doesn't say anything like that. It seems as though he's talking about all the people in that area, all of them, including everybody that's talking to him. You wicked and perverse generation. So who got rebuked to? To a degree, the Father did. How does the Father get rebuked for saying the disciples didn't get it? The disciples couldn't heal my son. Hmm. Why? The reason the disciples couldn't heal the boy is in part the father's own lack of faith. Really? Yes. Mark 9, 23 to 24 helps to inform this. You can get it from the text, but it's a lot more subtle in Matthew. But in Mark 23, 24, you get it. In Matthew 29, or Mark 9, 23 and 24, it states the father said, If you can, is what he says to Jesus. If you can. And then Jesus repeats the Father's statement, If you can? If you can? And then the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. So it appears, what is the problem? To a degree, it's the Father's faith, too. It's really the whole generation. So what is the biggest problem in the passage? What is the biggest need in the passage? Believe it or not, it's not the son being delivered from the demon. It's the wicked and perverse and unbelieving generation. That is the biggest need. That is the biggest need in this passage. So the need grows, we see. And not only was this man's son under a horrific control of a demon, the father also lacked faith and apparently did know Jesus could accomplish it, but was doubting, was doubting. Jesus rebuked, his rebuke here reveals a lot about the people Jesus was dealing with in his day. They were, look at it, that's so clear. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Wow, what a description of a generation. 
Right? Look at that description. This is who you are. Your identity is who you are as a, as a generation. You're an unbelieving and perverted generation. Jesus understood the people perfect. He knew they were what? Totally depraved. The desperate condition of their hearts was overwhelming. It caused Jesus to ask two rhetorical questions to express his discouragement over the people's condition. He, he asked two questions, and the two questions just show the heart of Jesus in light of who he's dealing with. <laughs> you can hear his, his desperation to a degree here, his discouragement. You hear even Jesus has moments of discouragement over the depravity of humanity, the people that he's dealing with. Is discouragement a sin? I don't think so. I don't think so. He's discouraged. He's grieved. Look at the, 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 the words. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Wait a second. Isn't Jesus a Calvinist? Uh, it was a joke. Didn't he? That was a joke. You understand, right? He was sovereign. Did he not know his hour? He know what was going on? Didn't he know how long? Didn't he know the moment he was going to die? Yeah, of course. But it shows the tension within the Son of God. It's no different than, can this cup pass from me? As he prays in the garden. It's this tension that he's a human. He's feeling the weight of being in a world of wretched sinners. He knows the Father's in control. He knows that everything is ordained, but yet he's sitting there in the tension. And he asked the people, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Any parent taking a trip in a van for any extended period of time knows exactly what Jesus was going through. Oh boy, do I know it. <laughs> how many times, how long is this trip? <laughs> how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? And Jesus questions there is a level of disgust with people that we cannot deny. It's clear. Jesus was disappointed in their unbelief and their sin, right? He was. They were worthy of what? His judgment. They were not worthy of His presence. They were not worthy of Him being in their presence, were they? He was the Son of the living God. He was perfect. He was holy. He was just. And yet He was in their presence. And they weren't even worthy of Him being there. The obvious lost condition of the vast majority of the people during Jesus' day is obvious from our reading of this text, isn't it? As we read through the whole Bible, do, is there any doubt in your mind that God should not dwell with man? Do you understand what I mean by that? 
We are not worthy of God dwelling with us and being with Him. They just didn't understand who He was though, right? They didn't understand that they had a desperate need and the need was in their own hearts. The Father had, the Father, not the Father, but the Father who had the Son that was demon-possessed, that Father had just as much of a problem as the Son did. You say, well, he wasn't controlled by a demon, so it wasn't that bad, was it? An unbelieving heart will lead to what? Eternity separated from God. You're a part of the wicked and perverse generation, is what Jesus says. This was the world Jesus lived in. And beloved, this is the world we live in. The people we live next to, the people we work with, the people we drive by on the roads, they are an unbelieving and perverted generation. Everywhere we look, that's what we see. They have a devastating need. They are headed towards judgment. They need hope. And beloved, we have that hope, don't we? We're going to talk about it in a little bit in the passage, and the passage points it out, but who is our hope? It's Christ Jesus Himself. He's the one that's here to provide for our devastating need. Do you have this hope? Why do we celebrate Christmas? We celebrate Christmas because we know that we're remembering that Christ Jesus came into the world for us to die, to pay for our sin. That's good news, isn't it? Do we have a message to share with our community? I bought a bunch of tracks on Christmas from Mike Gendron's ministry. I thought about it. I, I looked at our board and I thought to myself, you know, there's the number of people that come on an average Sunday. There's about 200 people roughly. If I could get everybody to pass out just two of these, we could give the gospel to 400 people. So before you leave, take two. Each person that's here, please take two. At least. Pass them out, okay? Let's share the good news of the gospel. Everybody's wanting a gift right now. Give them the greatest gift. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Tell them about Him. Please, tell them about Him. Okay? I'll have them at the back and you can get them as you go out. So we have a problem. They have a problem. They were a part of the wicked, the unbelieving and perverted generation. Not only did the demon-possessed son have a dire need, the whole generation was in the desperate circumstances. Next we see the little faith disciples had a problem too. The little to faith disciples. Look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The disciples want to know, what is the problem? What is the problem? <laughs> First, it's important to note, they don't apply Jesus' rebuke 
to themselves, did they? Do you understand what I mean? What did Jesus say? You're an unbelieving... He said it to the Father, but he was talking with, in general to everybody. And he says, you're an unbelieving and perverted generation. What should the disciples have said? Oh, I have unbelief. <laughs> I got a problem. But what did they do? What did they do, beloved? Oh, that was applied to them. Oh, it's got to be that scribe. It's got to be that father. It was the father's problem. But, but why couldn't I? Why couldn't I cast him out? Why couldn't we do it? Isn't that us, beloved? Isn't that us? We hear a sermon like this and we're applying it to everybody but ourselves, aren't we? We're thinking, boy, I wish my son was listening to this one. Oh, I wish my father would listen to this. Oh, I hope my husband that's sitting right next to me, or my wife, because that would be very confusing if that's... My wife that's sitting right next to me, I hope she's listening. Do you see it? Do you see it? They misapplied. And by the way, did they have the same problem? Yes, because he says they have the same problem. In other words, he does what? Yeah, you're part of that generation. Remember, beloved, apply God's word to ourselves first before moving on to others. Boy, that will just kind of shut us all up, won't it? I think all too often we are quick to apply the word of God to everybody but our own selves. But notice how gentle and encouraging Jesus was with them. He says, because of the littleness of your faith. This theme of little faith is repeated numerous times in Matthew. Haven't we already seen it? I've preached several messages on it. The littleness of their faith. It's repeated over and over and over. By the way, uh, just take heed to what we've said. If a message is repeated in the Scripture, it's probably because it applies to us over and over and over. Also, we need to hear it. We're just like the disciples, right? How's your faith? Real big. Please, please, please don't say you have real big faith. Little faith was mentioned in Matthew 6.30. Matthew 8.26, Matthew 14.31, Matthew 16.8, and here again in 17.20. In Matthew 8.26, remember the storm? And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Or Peter. Peter's walking on the water, and we all... He starts to sink, and Jesus stretches out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those in the boat worshipped him. Interesting. Think for a second. Who was in the boat? The disciples. The disciples. They had been reviewed for what? Little faith previous. The previous winds. At least Peter got out of the boat. His little faith got him out of the boat. Yet... That's not the last time we hear little faith. Over and over and over again. 
Matthew 16, 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss amongst you that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, how many large baskets you picked up? You can hear in that passage the frustration, or not frustration, maybe frustration is a little bit too strong of a word, but the discouragement that Jesus would have in that passage, right? But you see how it would all play together as he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father has just said, listen to him. And everybody's not believing. How long shall I put up with you? How long shall I be with you? Then his disciples come up to him and said, why couldn't we cast it out? Because of your littleness of faith. Now it appears the disciples also have the problem, the desperate need, don't they? They have little faith. They were not as committed and willing to believe in Jesus all the time perfectly. What does it mean to have little faith, beloved? It means we have to see things to believe it. It means that we trust in ourselves and our own abilities often and it overrides our trust in God. It means our circumstances and our needs are bigger in our minds than our Savior's love and care and power for us. How many of you in here are hit with things in your week where you doubt and you get discouraged and you run and you try to fix it yourself? Yeah? It's us, isn't it? I absolutely love this quote from Calvin. Get this, John Calvin quote. Excellent. Oh, this is wonder to put the thought. There is none of us that does not experience both of them, belief and unbelief in himself. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers. But God forgives us and exercises such forbearance towards us as to reckon us believers on account of a small portion of faith. Wow, mark that down. Think on that. Meditate on that. That's, that's profound. That's this. Why were the disciples his disciples? It wasn't because of their little faith. It was ultimately because Christ would die to pay for their little faith, their unbelief, their doubt, their discouragement, their unbelief. Just a small little bit of faith in Christ, just a small little bit means that we are counted right with God. We're righteous in God's eyes. It only takes a small little bit of faith. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? You move a mountain. The impossibility. Isn't that what he said? Oh, this is good, isn't it? How many of us have a need? I have a need. I have a need. My little faith. My little faith. You know, I was thinking about this. 
as your pastor. I, I, I know I'm probably the only pastor, one of the few that you've probably ever heard confess sin and say I'm just a man in front of you. I want you to understand something. That is what it's really all about. Because it's not about exalting me because I am nothing. It's all about Christ. He takes messed up, broken people and glorifies himself. I'm thankful for that. How about you? Don't exalt any man except for Jesus Christ, the God-man. So there are three desperate needs revealed in the scene. These are needs that called for another revelation of the Savior's love. So we see the second part, the Savior's love revealed. We see four revelations of His love. First, we see the Savior warned of their unbelief. Second, the Savior delivered a son from the demon. Third, the Savior promised great blessing for faith. And finally, the Savior promised a great sacrifice. Let's walk down through these real quickly. You'll see them. We've already kind of alluded to them. You know it's coming, so I don't have to spend near as much time on this. First, the Savior warned of their unbelief. We see it in verse 17. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. You say, well, Mike, you've already said this. Well, we must not undervalue the words of warning given by the Savior in His Word when He speaks. Do you understand that this is a true act of love? This is a true act of love. When you mess up and you read your Bible and you're confronted by the Scriptures and it points to your unbelief, that is God loving you. What? So you come to a church... You come to a church that's going to preach the Word and it's going to confront you. And you might be thinking, well, why doesn't He just give us a feel-good message every once in a while? Why not some more feel-good messages? Well, because one of the most loving things that God can do is to point out that we don't measure up. That we fall short. To hear this message is is beautiful music to my soul. As, as Pastor Mark was teaching in Sunday school about the qualifications of an elder, I have to admit to you, it's direction, not perfection. I promise you. I'm not perfect. And I was confronted by that. I was confronted in little areas where I could be a better follower of Christ, that I could look more like Him. What did I do? Well, I'm just going to get better, Steve. I'm going to be a better man today. I'm going to be a better elder. You're going to really see God in me. That would be a horrible disaster for me to say. I needed the confrontation. Because then it shows me what? I'm not it. As Mark said, are any of us qualified for this? I need the Word. Don't you need the Word? You need to be confronted with it. You think that you've got it figured out, but you don't. You all need to be confronted daily with the Word of God. It's a loving act of God to read your Bible. As He confronts our souls and shows us there's only one place we have hope, and it's in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Savior warned of their unbelief. The book that we have in our laps, and, or maybe on our phones, is proof God loves us. Second, the Savior delivered His Son from the demon. It's a beautiful picture, verse 18. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Well, that's almost like a side note to this whole passage, really. You know why? Hey, but, but it's often that you hear sermons, and the sermon's really all about just the healing. When in fact, this is just a kind of a side note. You know what's really amazing about this love, though? Is that it happened despite their unbelief. It happened despite their unbelief. He still healed them. What a great truth. Did the son deliver, did that son deserve to be delivered from the demon? Answer, no. Did the father deserve to have the son healed? No. He didn't. Unmerited, beautiful, unconditional love from God. Not because they deserved it. Not because they earned it. Not because they were worthy of it. But because God is a loving God. Third, the Savior promised great blessing for faith. It says, Because of the littleness of your faith, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, pay attention, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now, We know from a passage like this that it's been twisted and distorted in all these things, right? If you make this whole passage about the demon-possessed man getting healed, you're going to make it all about that. But what is the nothing will be impossible for you that's really in view here? It's that you could be reckoned right with God despite the littleness of your faith. Ho, 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 ho. I hope you got that. It's, I feel like I'm losing people at this point because we're getting close to the end. Don't. Don't check out this is the point. What is the moving the mountain? Listen, beloved. Moving the mountain is not building a new church building. It's not. Moving the mountain is not giving you five sales if you're a salesman. Moving the mountain is not health, wealth, and prosperity. Moving the mountain is changing the hearts of wicked and perverse generation and calling people to repentance and faith in Christ and giving them life in the Son of God that died and rose from the dead. That's the mountain that's being moved. How hard is it for a rich man to get into heaven? Harder than a camel to get through the eye of a needle. But what's impossible for man is possible for God. Zacchaeus, the rich man, gets healed, gets saved. For salvation has come to this man's house. Oh, folks, you know, there's some great news in this. There's some great news because I can't save my kids. And I can't save those loved ones that hate God. But what's impossible for me is possible for God. 
And Christ Jesus did it by coming into the world and living the perfect life that I couldn't. And he trusted in the Father even to the point of death, death on the cross. And when he finished at the end of his life, as he died on the cross, he said to Telestai, it is finished. That's a mountain moving, what do you think? And we trust in him and God can work through that gospel message to save many. This again was Jesus making a stunning promise. Faith in the Lord can accomplish the impossible. Even little faith can move a mountain. Obviously, this is metaphorical language, right? The point, the point was the impossible was possible by faith in Christ because Christ was going to do a great thing through them. By the way, the mustard seed comment is used by Jesus three other times in different settings to make the same point. Faith, even a little faith in me, can bring great change and do the impossible. Finally, what's the greatest display of Jesus' love in this passage, revealed in this passage? It's that last one. It is stunning. And it's how faith moves mountains. Listen closely. Faith in Christ moves mountains. Why? Because what Christ did accomplished great things. So faith in Him, His person, and His work does great things. And that's exactly why Jesus does what? Look, verse 22. He repeats it. He says it again. He says it again. What does he say again, Mike? What does he say again? See, there's a problem in the world. There was a problem in the world. They were rejecting their Messiah. They did not believe in him, right? They didn't believe in him. They had a problem. Even the disciples had little faith. They needed their unbelief what? Paid for. Because unbelief is what? Sin. And so what does Jesus allude to? There's a solution coming. I am the solution and my work is the solution. Look at it, verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Sadly, I don't think they were grieved for the right reasons. Not yet. You're going to die? You're going to die? See, here's the problem. Thus, in, thus lies the problem. The disciples are like us. The disciples were like the world. The world didn't see their need. They didn't understand that they needed a Savior. They didn't completely grasp that they needed somebody to die in their place to atone for their little faith. I think they were deeply grieved, but they were deeply grieved by what? Jesus, you're going to leave us. You're going to die. You shouldn't be treated wrong. I don't think at this point they're going, Oh, it's our sin you're going to pay for. Oh, that's horrible. My sin is going to hold you there. No, I think that's after the fact. I think they got it after. Why? Because they wanted the Son of Man to rule and reign, but they didn't want the suffering before glory.
but the Son of Man had to come into the world and die, be placed in a grave, and rise three days later. Why? Because of the devastating circumstances that we're all in. We live in a world where the prince of the power of the world, the air, rules and reigns. The God of this world, as 2 Corinthians says, is working in the hearts of the unbelieving to blind the minds so that they may not believe. Is the, is the demonic world active today? Oh, yes, beloved. And is the world filled with unbelieving and perverted? Yes, beloved. We're no different. And are there disciples of Jesus in the room that have little faith? Yes, that's all of us in the room that believe, right? Our faith is what? Little. How many of you need a Savior? This is why Jesus came into the world. To die to pay for sinners like us. To give us hope of a new life that's found in Him. And if we trust in Him, we repent and we believe in Him and we continue to repent daily and look to Him and trust Him, our sins are forgiven. And we're in right relationship with Him. And one day we will be in His presence in glory forever and ever and ever. Who gets all the credit? Who gets all the glory? Jesus does. So let's worship Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your kindness towards us in Christ. Thank You for the One that came into the world to die to pay for sinners like us. Lord, I pray that if there's someone in this room that does not know You in this as the Savior, that they will see their sin and they will cry out to You and ask You to forgive them and to change their hearts and help them to follow You. Lord, I pray that as we go out this week that you will burden every person's heart in the room to share the good news with others. Whether it's uh, somebody that serves us at a restaurant or our neighbors or our co-workers or our children or our parents or our relatives. Lord, we pray that you will burden us with the great truth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the world. God, please help us now to go and proclaim this good news to a lost and dying world, knowing that you can do the impossible. You can change hearts of the unbelieving and make them believing. Thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us in Christ. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.